Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. This is my 50th interview, and my guest this week needs no introduction. He's the co-author of the immortal King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, Douglas Gillette. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. The king energy is primordial in all men. It bears the same relationship to the other three mature masculine potentials as the divine child does to the other three immature masculine energies. It comes first in importance and it underlies and includes the rest of the archetypes in perfect balance. The good and generative king is also a good warrior, a positive magician, and a great lover. And yet, with most of us, the king comes online last. We could say that the king is the divine child, but seasoned and complex, wise and in a sense as selfless, as the divine child is cosmically self-involved. Whereas the divine child, especially in his aspect as the high chair tyrant, has infantile pretensions to godhood, the king archetype comes close to being God in his masculine form within every man. In many ways, the king energy is father energy. It is our experience, however, that although the king underlies the father archetype, as Freud defined it, it is more extensive and more basic than the father. Historically, kings have always been sacred. As mortal men, however, they have been relatively unimportant. It is the kingship or the king energy itself that has been important. As Sir James Frazier and others have observed, Kings in the ancient world were often ritually killed when their ability to live out the king archetype began to fail. What was important was that the generative power of the energy not be tied to the fate of an aging and increasingly impotent mortal. With the raising up of the new king, the king energy was re-embodied, and the king as archetype was renewed in the lives of the people of the realm. In fact, the whole world was renewed. This pattern, the ritual killing and reviving, is what lies behind the Christian story of the death and resurrection of Christ, the Savior King. Earlier, we said that the death of the archetypes of boyhood, and especially of the hero, was the birth of the man, that the end of boy psychology is the beginning of man psychology. Two functions of king energy make this transition from boy psychology to man psychology possible. The first of these is ordering. The second is the providing of fertility and blessing. Like the divine child, the good king is at the center of the world. He sits on his throne on the central mountain or on the primeval hill as the ancient Egyptians called it. 
And from this central place, all of creation radiates in geometrical form out to the very frontiers of the realm. World is defined as that part of reality that is organized and ordered by the king. What is outside the boundaries of his influence is non-creation, chaos, the demonic, and non-world. In conjunction with his ordering function, the second vital good that the king energy manifests is fertility and blessing. As the mortal king went, so did the realm, both its order and fertility. If the king was lusty and vigorous sexually, the land would be vital. If he stayed healthy and strong, the crops would grow, the cattle would reproduce, the merchants would prosper, and many babies would be born to his people. Always, the king's culminating ordering generative act was to marry the land in the form of his primary queen. It was only in creative partnership with her that he could assure every kind of bounty for his kingdom. It was the royal couple's duty to pass their creative energies on to the kingdom in the form of children. The kingdom would mirror the royal generativity, which, let us remember, was at the center. As the center was, so would be the rest of creation. When a king became sick or weak or impotent, the kingdom languished. The rains did not come. The crops did not grow. The cattle did not reproduce. Drought would assault the land and the people would perish. So the king was the earthly conduit from the divine world, the world of the king energy, to this world. He was the mediator between the mortal and the divine. He was the central artery, we might say, that allowed the blood of the life force to flow into the human world. It was not only fertility in an immediately physical sense or generativity and creativity in a general sense that came out of the second function of the king energy through the efficacy of ancient kings. It was also blessing. Blessing is a psychological or spiritual event. The good king always mirrored and affirmed those others who deserved it. He did this by seeing them in a literal sense, in his audiences at the palace, and in the psychological sense of noticing them, knowing them in their true worth. He held audience primarily not to be seen, but to see, admire, and delight in his subjects, to reward them, and to bestow honors upon them. Being blessed has tremendous psychological consequences for us. There are even studies that show that our bodies actually change chemically when we feel valued, praised, and blessed. Young men today are starving for blessing from older men, starving for blessing from the king energy. This is why they cannot, as we say, get it together. They need to be blessed. They need to be seen by the king because if they are, something inside will come together for them. That is the effect of blessing. It heals and makes whole. That's what happens when we are seen and valued for our legitimate talents and abilities. Of course, many ancient kings, like many men in kingly positions today, 
fell far short of the ideal image of the good king. Yet this central archetype lives on independently of any one of us and seeks through us to come into our lives in order to consolidate, create, and bless. What can we say are the characteristics of the good king? Based on ancient myths and legends, what are the qualities of this mature masculine energy? The king archetype in its fullness possesses the qualities of order, of reasonable and rational patterning, of integration and integrity in the masculine psyche. It gives stability and centeredness. It brings calm. It brings maintenance and balance. It defends our own sense of inner order, our integrity of being and of purpose, our essential certainty in our masculine identity. It looks upon the world with a firm but kindly eye. It sees others in all their weaknesses and in all their talent and worth. It guides them and nurtures them toward their own fullness of being. It rewards and encourages creativity in us and in others. In its central incorporation and expression of the warrior, it represents aggressive might when that is what is needed when order is threatened. It also has the power of inner authority. This is the energy that seeks peace and stability, orderly growth and nurturing for all people. And not only for all people, but for the environment, the natural world. The king cares for the whole realm and is the steward of nature as well as of human society. This is the energy manifested in ancient myths of the shepherd of his people and of the gardener and husbandman of the plants and animals in the kingdom. This is the voice that affirms the human rights of all, that minimizes punishment and maximizes praise. This is the voice from the center, the primeval hill within every man. By my reckoning, the men's movement has been around for about 40 years. It began in the 1980s, during an era called the mythopoetic men's movement. For a bit of backstory, the war against masculinity had been raging for a century at that point. It had passed through two previous phases. First came the Industrial Revolution, which removed fathers from the home and sent them off to factories. World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II followed, which were a devastating assault on men's bodies. Subsequently, generations of weakened men were unable to resist the cultural assault of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, beginning in the 1950s, not the 1960s, with the beat poets Elvis. Marilyn Monroe, and Hugh Hefner of Playboy. The 1960s only continued cultural trends that began in the 1950s, just in a more colorful and overt fashion, aided by the sexual revolution in full bloom and the birth control pill. Intuitive and emotion-centered boys tuned in, turned on, and dropped out of society with Woodstock, weed, sex, and acid. Physically competent, athletic, and brave boys were drafted off to Vietnam to be destroyed. This schism in the masculine psyche exists today and gave oligarchs and their politicians a wide-open playing field to begin wrecking American and Western culture. Once the noble men in their way, like John and Robert Kennedy, 
and Martin Luther King Jr. were assassinated as well. The cultural war was so successful, so quickly, that the political war against men began quietly in the 1970s with the decline of American manufacturing and the institution of no-fault divorce, allowing for the dissolution of marriage without cause. The first no-fault divorce law was signed in 1969 by the governor of California at that time, Ronald Reagan. Given that women end 70% of marriages, this tool became carte blanche for dissatisfied wives to leave their husbands and seek satisfaction elsewhere. Damn the consequences. By the mid-1970s, data had become available showing that children of divorce were having reduced outcomes in school. This led a young social scientist, Dr. Warren Farrell, to leave his position on the board of the National Organization of Women once they refused to compromise on their support of this issue. Which brings us up to the 1980s. By this point, men could sense that something was wrong with society regarding masculinity, even if they couldn't say what. And the poet and author Robert Bly began touring the United States, doing nights of poetry, myth, and song for men to help resurrect the masculine spirit. He settled on myths, stories, and Jungian archetypes to help create a framework with a more universal appeal than religion, something inspiring that men of all faiths could agree on. Bly's tour was immortalized in the program A Gathering of Men when he was interviewed by Bill Moyers. This interview was distributed via VHS tape, which allowed news about Bly's tour to expand across the country to thousands of men hungering for a reconnection to self before the advent of the internet. There's much more to this story, but that's a thumbnail sketch of how the mythopoetic men's movement and the men's movement generally was born. Three significant books about men and one about women came from this era, all of which I recommend. First was Robert Bly's Iron John, which became a bestseller following his Gathering of Men series. Second was Fire in the Belly by Sam Keen, which was the first book I bought about masculinity when I was a boy, though I can't remember why or where. Third was the book Women Who Run With the Wolves by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, another bestselling classic which I recommend. But of the important books of this era, one stands alone, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. Which brings me to my guest this week, the co-author of that seminal classic, Douglas Gillette. He's a husband, father, Jungian analyst, college professor, and poet. But most of all, he's a man who's accomplished the rare feat of creating something whose influence will extend far beyond his own life echoing down the generations to impact men he'll never meet. It's impossible to overstate the impact of his book. I hear the title mentioned weekly in one context or another, because men being able to witness themselves in Gillette's framework helps them see their inherent goodness and nobility in an era dedicated to shaming men for often exaggerated crimes of wickedness. I know this for myself because in the early 2000s when I was in college, Learning to think archetypally about my own mind helped me see that it was okay to be the thoughtful, spiritually-oriented man I was, and still am. Douglas's book and the mode of thinking it inspired showed me that I could take those core aspects of me, the magician and the lover, and round them out with becoming a warrior in the hopes of someday becoming a king. In that way, king, warrior, magician, lover was a gift to me, as it has been to millions of men around the world and continues to be until this day. In our conversation, Douglas and I discussed how men's work began with the warrior energy and since has lost contact with it. 
the sensitive subjects that the men's movement avoids, the importance of men separating from the mother and how to do it without losing touch with the feminine, the power and strength in true humility, Christianity's answer to the origins of human suffering, and the scope of that suffering in men's and women's experience, and finally some reflections as Douglas looks back on his life as an elder. To make a contribution like Douglas has to three generations of men requires authentic care and genuine love for the masculine experience, coupled with profound philosophical and spiritual insight. I've been fortunate to get to know Douglas over the past few months, and it's my hope that in this conversation you'll see, as I do, that that is who Douglas is. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men, thank you. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review for this podcast on Apple and Spotify, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Men. This is my 50th interview in a conversation I know many men wish that they could have, so I couldn't be more honored to welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the co-author of King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, Douglas Gillette. Douglas Gillette, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. So uh, we were just talking a second ago about some of the early days of the men's movement decided to just jump into the conversation. And you had just said something really fascinating that in, it sounds like in the early days, and we're talking about, it sounds like like the mid 80s, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of emphasis on, uh, on uh, you were saying testosterone and warrior energy and a pushback to radical feminism. And then it kind of moved into more of like the lover and magician thinking and kind of feeling energy. I wonder if you can talk about that shift, because I think it's that uh, uh, thinking and feeling energy that most people associate with the men's movement back in those days. And they, yeah. don't, they don't know so much about it was, it was more of a response to radical feminism back then. Yeah. Uh, well, that was, that, that, that's my experience. Okay. Of, uh, and I came in, like, as I said, a couple of years after the, it really began to launch. And there are all kinds of men's groups, uh, organizations trying to start. I guess there still are. There's yeah. a variety. Um, uh, but, but it really was, let's find a way, as in my experience, I have to qualify it with that. Let's find a way to be warriors that are uh, simultaneously firm, strong, uh, boundary setting. Uh, fight when we have to, uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, with tenderness, uh, compassion, justice, etc. Um, but it, yeah, and I remember it, it. I remember being part of a group uh, for a weekend retreat uh, early, early. I don't, I don't even know. It was probably 1988 or 1989, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, I said, you know, what about, okay, it's important to address father issues, really important, and warrior issues. But what about broadening to, uh, because there's other stuff going on here too with men. Mm -hmm. Uh, what What if we also looked at lover energy seriously? And, and. And along with that, uh, mother issues. What are we going to do with the feminine? Wow. Okay. So this is this is. I was. I wanted to get here. Now here we are. Great. Yeah. And and no, nobody would hear it. Yep. Nobody would hear yep. it. And I was accused in one meeting. Yep. Accused is too strong a word, but criticized 
in one of those uh, meetings in the late 80s of wanting to turn um, the men's work focused mostly around the father and so forth, father wounds, into a salon. In other words, I was trying to bring in to address all, all the issues, mm-hmm. uh, masculine, feminine, warrior, lover. Uh, that's as far as we were pretty much at that time. Magician energy. Mm-hmm. Thinking as a valid way of expressing masculinity. Mm-hmm. Reflecting in that way, not just guts work, which is mostly emotional. Of course, everything yeah. human beings do, almost everything, involves some level of thinking. but. I really thought a, a more robust and full approach to masculinity was to include more the thinking energy, mm-hmm. uh, magician. Uh, and, you know, so uh, things went along. Um, I facilitated my own men's groups um, for four or five years um, in, in, in my home. And, and we did, you know, uh, include um, mother issues, father issues, lover, warrior, magician, of course, the king. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that went along pretty well. And I saw the rest of the home, oh, a turning point, mm-hmm. which Robert identified. And I forget what year this was, but when the new warrior training became the mankind project. Mm-hmm. They merged them or something like that. Cause I still call it the new warrior training, but that's the weekend, not the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I've been told, I didn't hear the comment, but I've been told that Robert's response was, well, now that uh, Robert Moore, mm-hmm. now, now that we have, uh, now that the name has changed to leave out warrior for the overall project, um, we're going to lose track of the warrior. Hmm. And the thing, the thing is going to morph out into all kinds of different things and become wow. more and more shapeless and yep. less focused. Yep. And I have, I have to say, I'm not, again, I'm not criticizing just outside observer watching the thing. Uh, I hear from a lot of men who on both sides of this, we, we need to stay focused on the warrior, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, which anybody, Republican, Democrat, anybody can be a part of. Sure. Um, and not be so amorphous and certainly not include a social agenda. Oh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like, okay. So I, I've heard complaints from both sides that, that no. I did not ever uh, intend for this to be a social movement, mm-hmm. you know, i.e. progressive or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, I hear, well, what's it worth if it isn't? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, I have heard there's quite a bit of controversy. Yes. And splitting off. And, and so... Well, that's my take on the evolution of the. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect, and that's really important because I I came into the men's movement through the the Mankind Project New Warrior Training Adventure. I had been studying masculinity sort of 
I didn't really know that that's what I was doing. I wouldn't have called it that. But since 2000, since I took a class on, on Carl Jung when I was in college. And so I was really mm. interested in, uh, in my own mind and how my mind did not seem to work the way that I was told men's minds were supposed to work, beer and football and all that stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but my experience right. of being a man was very different. It wasn't until I took a class on Carl Jung where I recognized like, oh, my mind works exactly fine. And so it was becoming acquainted with these pieces of my mind, which I had a sense were very different from women's minds. And then when mm -hmm. I finally made it to the New Warrior Training Adventure and encountered the archetypes from your book, that was when it was like, oh, it actually all fits, right, in this really powerful way. And, and But I can say, I can validate everything that you just said about the, about the Mankind Project. The warrior energy has been, I would say, subsumed within lover and magician energy. So it's like emotional warriorship. So it's not warrior in your life necessarily showing up in that way. It's being like an emotional warrior, like through guts work and stuff like that. And any mm -hmm. notion of being a, a warrior in your own life sort of falls a little bit by the wayside because that's energy they're not super comfortable with. And then, uh, and then also, yes, there has definitely been the injection of a, a social, a progressive social agenda. And my argument to that is 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 that um, you know men's work is supposed to take stuff out of men not put stuff in right? mm. just to take away mm -hmm. the, the things that get in the way of proper functioning, not put in your own ideology. That's a violation of a sacred, a sacred contract of safety. Like I'm not there to be programmed by you. I'm there to be healed. Right. And so yeah. that's, that's yeah. my extreme criticism for what they're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you said something a minute ago, let me try to recall it. Um, that really resonated. Oh, different ways of being a man mm -hmm. okay i was i i have never been confess i have <laughs> never been interested in team sports for example sure i yeah. mean does that make me less of a man no um i i've been i was when i was young very competitive at one-on-one -on -one sports uh great which brings up the warrior yeah it does uh, in a very direct way, uh, wrestling, track, uh, fencing, uh, and so forth. Tennis. Mm -hmm. What I like about those sports, and there again, I'm not a joiner. Sure. I'm not a not a team player. Yeah. I, I want to get out there and fight the, you know. But but with that, I uh, and that's a legitimate expression of warrior energy. Mm -hmm. There 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 certainly are warrior energy in one form or another not probably uh identifiable as such by some of the masculinity uh masculine expressions you were mentioning mm -hmm. but uh certainly warrior energy is present in all um self-initiated projects all work that's worth doing or that the man is involved in and that can be from composing music mm -hmm. to uh uh, uh is in car sales selling as many cars as possible uh, <laughs> yes but but fairly and honestly yes. to uh yeah it's just there's so many different expressions um eric newman uh i forget the name of the book right now but you know, he wrote a number of uh, books on um, the artist 
Well, I'm an artist too. Mm-hmm. So I really identify with that. The artist uh, is ideally uh, a man or woman, but in this case, we're talking about men, uh, a man who is uh, intuitively deeply connected with, with his unconscious and beyond that mm-hmm. with the collective unconscious. And our unconsciouses and the, certainly the collective have both masculine and feminine qualities. You can't, for example, execute a, a sculpture without drawing both on feminine and masculine energies. Sure. So, Good. you know, to say that this guy over here who's, who's doing uh, some kind of artistic expression is less of a man or, or less of a warrior than um, uh, the star baseball player is, I'm sorry, that's part of what's wrong with us is we have these stereotypes. Yeah. Uh, all throughout life mm-hmm. about what it means not only to be a man, but what it means to be human. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and uh, these, these artificial distinctions, I do a series on my podcast called Poetry for Men, where mm. I read and interpret a poem. And, and, and I think over the past several generations, let's say, there's no more, I guess, um, stereotypically, quote unquote, feminine artist than the poet. But you yeah. go back and you read these poems, you know, by these very capable adventurers, sailors, men that have lived, you know, Indiana Jones-esque lives or monks. Right. Or, and, and these are super masculine themes, super masculine writers. And the majority of great poets throughout society were, were men. And there were many, there were certainly many, many examples of that. And so it's like, we only have this, we only have this contemporaneous view that an artist is somehow not masculine in what he's in what he's doing when in fact working with marble or working with bronze or any of these, you know, if, if we're in a sculptor or the discipline required to become truly excellent in classical style of painting, these are hyper-masculine pursuits and it requires that energy to, to achieve excellence in it. it, it but it's, oh, yeah. it's very different from a baseball player or very different from a race car driver, but it's no less, it's no less potent in its creative potential. Well, think of Beethoven yeah. too, you know, he, he was known as the beast, you know, <laughs> meaning the, you know, way too much testosterone, way too, you know, yeah. um, a loud mouth, uh, bully, uh, you know, and, and yet, Without that energy, yeah. I mean, granted, okay, he and the rest of the human race needs to be on psychotropic drugs, but um, <laughs> but the power of the beauty yeah. of his work, the beauty of it. I mean, in my view, there has been no more beautiful music written than Beethoven. I mean, there have been other beautiful of course. types, so forth, but nothing more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't listen to his symphonies and, and think, oh, wow, this guy was really Femi. Uh, <laughs> listen to all those delicate violins. Yeah. Yeah. And the soaring voices yeah. and, the I mean, you know, so yeah, I, I, w- I was always troubled by what I thought was turning into, or maybe was initiated as a stereotypical view of men that played right in to the feminist, the radical mm-hmm. feminist of men. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 
you know, the, the killers, the, 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 the dummies, the, the crude, the brutal, the, and I thought, well, okay, I know that's not the goal here is to end up where the feminists have, have got us pegged, but um, um, there's a kind of playing into uh, the feminist stereotype. That's what I thought mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, and I've done a lot of gender research um, and in ter- over, the, over many years at, and published a book a long time ago, forget the year, Primal Love with St. Martin's Press on couples work mm-hmm. uh, in which I, I used evolutionary psychology, uh, which I know is a controversial thing that we evolved the genders to be the same species, but just barely (laughs) fair. I'm exaggerating, but uh, obviously there's much more overlap than there is difference, but there are, there are differences. That's right. Uh, And what was I going to say? I was going to say that. um, So uh, I think rather than going ideological, uh, with men's work, as as, as mm-hmm. you're, you know, suggesting as is part of the splitting that's taking place in men's work in general. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, um, all of what a man is, in my view, should be included, and that includes um, creativity, uh, closeness to the unconscious, uh, a, a facing and dealing with mother issues as well as father issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when, you're, when you're not dealing with a core issue in psychology or, or depth psychology, certainly, uh, there's an elephant in the room that is not being seen, paid attention to, et cetera, and that will trip you up. Mm-hmm. Amen. That was my observation was that the men's work world is not at all comfortable dealing with mother issues. Like the, 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 to even breathe the word woman or women or mother or girlfriend or wife or anything like that. I was actually, I was actually staffing, um, I was staffing a, a, a retreat, a, a mankind project retreat. This would have been in 2019. And, uh, and, you know, there was space for the staff to speak in the process, you know, as well as the, the men who were being initiated. And I, and I mentioned I said something like, um, I said something like, I, I, I learned that at some stage in my life that I was able to determine my own life. I didn't have to allow my mother or my girlfriend to determine it for me, or something like that. And mm-hmm. there was the sound that came through the other end of the room, and it sounded like a hissing sound. Like it sounded like someone was hissing at me. Now, I can't say for sure that's what it was because I looked at it and mm-hmm. see anybody. It could have been someone exhaling for any other reason, but it landed. The, my, my first gut instinct was that this is someone hissing at me because I had said a forbidden word. And the forbidden yeah. word is woman, that you're actually not allowed to talk about these things. And that was, that was kind of troubling for me at the time. It's like, well, as a man, you, you can work through all the stuff with your father, which of course is very necessary. And we have a deep father oh. wound and father hunger in our culture right now. And we all have to work through that as men. And that's really important. But we have to be able to look at the mother as well, because she's part of the picture also. And, and Well, yeah. And we were once one with her. Yeah. More, yeah. You know, so the, the, the whole uh, task journey labor of 
uh, separating from the mother. Yeah. It's not just at birth, you know, it's an emotional, chemical, uh, spiritual, whatever separation that, uh, that a man must undertake. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you don't do that and you can't do that by just, um, as important as it is, as it is father work, uh, it has to be, it's because it's not just the father, well, whoever the father was, however he was, you still as a man, in my view, have to do the work necessary to separate from the mother without losing your feminine side. That's tough. That's awesome. Yeah. Girls, girls oh. have a, a difficult journey too, separating from the mother, but it's different. it does not involve gender identity. Men have to separate from the mother, both in, in the same ways or similar ways that girls do in terms of maturation, becoming an individual and so forth. But they also have to do gender work that separates from the mother without losing their own valid femininity. Mm -hmm. Like their own, their own emotional, intuitive kind of nature. Yeah. Well, this is, this is what we're talking about initiation. And this is great because I talk to men about initiation all the time. That manhood is bestowed, you know, from the men of the village, that it's not something that you just have one day. It's like men who you, who you hold in high esteem and respect, look at, look at you and say, now you are a man in our eyes. And then that's when we become a man. And that's the, that's the part that I've been focusing on when I talk to men, but I've completely, and you're right. I've completely forgotten that there, that the first part of that psychodrama is the separation from the mother. I've, I've completely left that. And that's, this is, this is great because Yes, because there are definitely men who who break from the mother and lose their emotional, intuitive nature, and those men are observed. And there are some men that never complete that separation at all. And so, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, I've never thought I've never thought of the divide as working in that way because there's a component of the men's movement that's hyper reactionary against women to varying degrees, right? There's you know there are men that take it way 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 too far, and then there are men that you know that they're a bit they're strong and firm in it but it feels like there's something else behind it and so i'm trying to understand that side of things better and i think you just put that put a put a pin on it there's there's a way of, of in my view there's a way of avoiding the work of separating of a man separating from the mother without losing uh, or devaluing the feminine within him the anima in Jung's terms, mm-hmm. uh, that is so un, so dysfunctional, um, uh, and that is to slap on a coat, almost like a layer of paint, of some kind of caricature or hyper mm-hmm. version of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get into the stereotypes of the, of the beer drinking sports watching uh i mean you know whatever yeah, yeah for sure i know a young man who uh has deep and toxic connection with his mother mm-hmm. uh who uh he's 30 years old and he's still at the beck and call of of, of his mother really he and the only way that he knows at this point to to 
struggle out of and establish some kind of masculine identity is to uh, put on a uh, an artificially low tone of voice. <laughs> Man. Uh, uh, make rigid opinionated pronouncements, which by the way, Jung said all come from the feminine. Uh, Did he really? That's interesting. Oh uh, yeah. He said, yeah, moralistic opinionating is <clears throat> essentially a function of the anima. Hmm. Uh, but, but anyway, and where uh, a cowboy hat, <coughs> cowboy hat and boots and a duster and imagine that he's a Texan. Now, wow. He never grew up in Texas. He's never been to Texas, but it's a persona in Jungian terms that he's, it's the only way that he's found to um, make like he's a man. Mm -hmm. Uh, That and several illegitimate kids, uh, you know? Yeah. So there's this huge task of, separation and healing from the feminine that he hasn't has no idea actually that he needs to undertake Mm -hmm. so then you get this caricature this cartoon of masculinity Mm -hmm. if you don't in my view if we don't deal with the feminine within and the task of separating from the mother whether our father was adequate not adequate great missing whatever there's still the mother work to do there's still the uh uh without fear um the the work with the inner feminine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this was this was the this was a lot of the core of my work that i had to do you know was really um you know and i've, I've spoken about my, about my mother in the past she passed away in 2006 but you know she had a really strong narcissistic streak and you know she um i was i was a very strong emotional support as a boy for her which you know, I wasn't supposed to be, let's put it that way. And so, uh, and so I had to do a lot of work within myself. And um, it was through doing that work that I came into an appreciation of, uh, of the, the shadow of the feminine, not in a, not in a judgmental kind of way, mm-hmm. but in a, in a real glimpsing the, the pain of what it means to be human kind of way, because we can, we, men's work is very open about talking about men's shadows it is not good at all about talking about women's shadows, but it's only yeah. in separating from the mother, separating from the feminine fully, that you can glimpse the other clearly and then have your heart open to the the, the tragic yes. condition of being human. And so it's being it, exactly. Yeah. And so that's the that's the thing that I think men's work in many ways is actually afraid to do, is actually afraid to to take that step, but it's so needed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's a story. Mm. I was I forget how old I was, uh, around 30, early 30s, probably. Uh, my mother was a very strong uh, person, woman, in both positive and I guess we could say negative ways or destructive or dysfunctional ways, but also uh, nurturing ways. Mm-hmm. And I was doing both father and mother work in in a setting of analysis Jungian analysis mm-hmm. it was the analysis and i remember i went home uh one weekend as i as i frequently did my father my father was completely out of the picture at that point or actually i was he was living in the philippines mm-hmm. and I, I i began to re-relate with him after 
basically 30 years of no relationship. Wow. Uh, and so that was coming online. A lot of things came together right about the same time. Anyway, for me to consolidate a masculine identity, mm -hmm. there was analysis, there was men's work, there was reconnecting with my father. There was, uh, in the analysis, a lot of work with, uh, my mother issues and my inner feminine. <laughs> I went home and, and my mother and I got into an argument as we frequently did. And, uh, and it became more and more kind of rancorous mm -hmm. and out of my mouth came, I meant to say, uh, uh, God almighty mother. Instead, I said, God, all mother mighty. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. And there was this silence. Like we both realized mm. what that meant um and it, it just came up i was startled i was in the next moment oh yeah right mm -hmm. and in that moment she was no longer uh god uh all mother mighty mm. i saw her then immediately following that as my sister i don't have any sisters yeah. but i mean as another struggling wounded human being mm -hmm. uh, uh like me uh like all of us uh on the same level mm -hmm. and i don't want to get religious here but to say i i realized the truth of we are all children of the divine mm -hmm. we are all actually siblings no matter where we stand in the generational hierarchy or, you know, temporal succession. And there went the mother complex. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of preparation for it, but that moment did it. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I mean, that's what it's, that, it's that, it's that glimpsing, that realization that, you know, whether someone is your father or your mother or your brother or your sister within your family, aunts, uncles, whatever, it's that there is still a, a quality of, of being a sibling, of, of sharing yeah. earth, of, of them enduring the same suffering as, as part of the human condition in their own unique way. Like your, your dad has his own cup of suffering that he's working with and your mom as well. And to be able to, to really see that just really opens mm -hmm. the heart to the, the human condition. And there's a lot of strength in that to recognize oh. that, to recognize that everyone's drinking from this, from their cup. It's like, Oh, you can actually see, and then you can be in that world Versus being yep. in a world of, of illusion where you think it's it's all somehow persecuting or personal or something like that. Because as right. long as you live in this frame of like, oh, people are just taking out their stuff. I'm so, oh, woe is me. It's like, no, they've got their own story that they're living. And when you mm -hmm. see yourself in someone else and see them in you, then it's like, oh, I can, I, for me anyway, that was when I learned how to navigate the world. It's like, oh, this person is suffering with their own stuff. And if I can depersonalize it and just work with my own stuff, I can navigate through the world that way with a far, far more better, um, far more effectively. And and these are not what you might call warrior qualities either. Like these are, oh. you know, these are, this is getting into lover energy, I guess you might say, perhaps some magician as well, but it's also, I think, very king-like. Also, to recognize, to sort of stand above things in a in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stand above or and or outside of. Yes. You know, while you're engaged. Yes. In. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah. Well, that's that 
whole business we've been talking about is something that I, um, for many years, longed to try to find a way to um, infuse into not just men's work, but uh, societal work, mm-hmm. uh, social, political, you know, and, um, you know, I teach these emeritus courses at, at Oakland College, Skokie, Illinois. I've been doing it for 18 years. Mm-hmm. I can basically teach whatever I want to and uh, and have have a group of 24 or so, sometimes 30, sometimes 35, that um, travel with me down all kinds of roads. It's wonderful. It's community, mm-hmm. in effect, of men and women. And I realized that that works so well because um, we're dealing with, it's mostly, you could put it under the rubric of history of thought, but uh, it's all kinds of stuff. But it, it's dealing with the human situation, mm-hmm. the human situation, uh, which men and women certainly do share. We do. And um, it's through that work which is it's intellectual work but it's also it's magician work in that sense but it, it's also um emotional work uh uh warrior energy lover energy and, and so forth and one of the realizations whether it's you know the ancient greek uh, tragedies or quantum physics or all the different things that i teach um it, it's the excitement of being on the adventure together, mm. you know, mm-hmm. as human. Um, and um, what was I going to say? Oh, the real realization, not just the intellectual thought of it, but the actual realization for me anyway, that we are all each other. Mm-hmm. We are all each other. Uh, at a deep level hence you know the collective unconscious right yeah Mm -hmm. and i think we've lost i think there's some degree to which we've lost sight of that and been placed in opposition to each other Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of focus on our on our differences um, in an unhealthy way because i think it's important to focus on our differences in a healthy way to say that men and women are different and complementary and and that there are all these qualities that overlap and all these qualities that don't overlap and yet there's this, say, divine perspective, divine way in which we are very, very similar. And that's the perspective that we've lost. You know, not yeah. only have we lost our, our good differences, we've lost our, our good similarities as well. Yeah, we have. Uh, there's a lot of confusion. Watching my daughter grow up, I came late to fatherhood. Mm. Um, but watching her grow up in a society in which the genders had been so poisoned against each other. Sure in her generation she's she's 25 now uh and uh, i mean in some ways it got that way honestly but between uh the radical dissing of men yeah which is the quickest way to end romance (laughs) possible yes real fast so then it all becomes sex or it becomes without romance it's just meat yeah and um 
I mean, human beings being what they are, they find some kind of romance, but it, but it is often uh, not full and, and insipid and lopsided. And then you have social media, which I, I won't get into my rant on that. <laughs> oh, please. But, you know, that stuff is reinforced, reinforced, yeah. reinforced, reinforced. We are enemies, not partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while um, there's been some modulation in that, and it is certainly true that abusive uh, males uh, need to be held accountable big time, mm-hmm. abusive of, of females. Um, I'm here to say that um, there is also abuse from the other side. Amen. When the situation is set up for that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, again, my emphasis would be we're all in this together. We are all each other with differences. And it's time to, as you s- suggest, to celebrate our differences while at the same time uh, celebrate our, our commonality. Mm-hmm. And not just in gender terms. But in terms of you know species, right, and not just our species, but <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, there is a lot of that. I've I've done quite a bit of traveling, and through my traveling, I've been able to see the ways that countries differ, and the and the ways that they have in common, and the and the general we might say shadows that different countries deal with. Not just America's shadow, but you can travel in any country in the world, and you can you can see it. You know. Countries like China or India, the shadow is a little bit more on the surface than other places. Um, but every country has a shadow that it's dealing with, and yeah. uh, and just as men and women have their shadows as well. And that and that realization, I think, is is really important. And we're kind of prevented from having it for fear of of saying something negative about the other coming off as criticism. When you just have to kind of acknowledge, like, no, this is real, and this is part of the this is part of the human condition. So we can see each other and move forward in a spirit of reconciliation. But as long as we're pretending that that stuff doesn't exist, as long as we have to whisper, and I understand why, under our breath, like, yes, women women abuse men. You know, like we have to sort of until we can until we can speak the truth about things like that, we're not mm. going to make any progress. But the good news is, I think that there are a lot of men and and women, especially, that are actually ready to begin talking about these things yeah. desperately yeah. ready to begin talking about these things yeah 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 uh the task is so gigantic um uh and yet it is absolutely essential we you know nobody gets to be angels nobody gets to be demons right um and um we're we're brothers and in, in, from my point of view we are brothers and sisters um masculine feminine with elements of the contrasexual other within each of us and then the value for me of human life intellect is important magician is important but the crucial value is uh lover mm-hmm. humaneness mm-hmm. if the lover does not inform the warrior if the lover does not inform the magician and obviously ultimately the sovereign the king and the queen mm. uh the whole thing is pointless mm-hmm. then we're just another tribe of of chimpanzees and that's not dissing chimpanzees <laughs> there aren't any chimpanzees listening uh, well I, I hope 
<laughs> but but it, you know uh, um we are that in my view and the only way to move forward and not end our history as uh, left of their own devices chimpanzees might um is to embrace and, and do everything possible male female everything in between and within to become more humane. Men, I'll cut right to it. There's probably something missing from your life, and I bet you don't even know. And that is a mission or purpose. A mission is more than a job, a career, or even a vocation or hobby. It's bigger than that. It's a godly pursuit that underlies all your most significant thoughts, words, and actions. If you seek to lead your family and your household, your purpose is the direction you're leading yourself in, and therefore your family undertakes the journey with you. Your purpose takes you beyond yourself, challenges you to expand your self-concept, confront your fears, acquire new skills, forge durable bonds of friendship and brotherhood, and most importantly, helps you contribute to the rebuilding of civilization. If that sounds too good to be true, it isn't, because your purpose is a gift. But here's the catch. To receive that gift, you must be ready for it. And that is the nature of my coaching. I'm a man who has been blessed with a purpose, and it's more than just this podcast. I've got something I'm working on behind the scenes that I know you're going to love, and pursuing that purpose has taught me the secrets of what it takes to cultivate the purpose. Now I want to pass it on to you. Having a purpose has changed my life, and I think it can change yours too. And to do that, we have work to do. If you're interested in learning more, the content on my website is currently being updated to reflect my new program. In the meantime, email me at info at renofmen.com to start the conversation and schedule a free 30-minute consultation. Mention the code word PURPOSE and I'll offer 10% off a 12-week package. I'll also let you in on my top secret purpose behind the scenes so you can see that I know what I'm talking about. Once again, email me at info at renofmen.com and mention the code PURPOSE to get 10% off a 12-week package. I started the Renaissance of Men to help men become the best versions of themselves through self-knowledge. If that sounds like you or the version of yourself you want to be, email me and let's get started. You identify this this humaneness within the within the lover energy and and, and I find myself wondering whether that that humaneness isn't necessarily to be found in the lover in terms of the word love as we conceptualize it, because mm-hmm. the word love is so complex, right? Yeah. Know, love in a romantic sense. We might be talking about more like eros, you know, in, in that kind of way, or or sense pleasures versus there's a there's a quality of divine love that rather than being, I would say, maybe identified within the lover, is manifested within the sovereign. It's that kind of it's it's that mm-hmm. kind of like it's like a it's it's like yeah. a boundary love let's say you know as opposed to just a, this oceanic kind of love that right. maybe the love right. that you're talking about which which you're right we do need to have a sense of humaneness and a sense of openness and compassion for the other and for the suffering of the other however that shows up but there's a there's a way in which the the lover energy as I think about it ha, has a has this oceanic kind of quality versus this versus this fathering kind of quality particularly from men. Yeah, I, I, that's a whole that's a whole universe. Um, let's go there. And let's go there. Yeah, E. E. Cummings or whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, for 
language for me is really clumsy. I mean, it's like trying, you, you just can't express the most subtle things through language. Uh, it's like fitting blocks together. So when I say lover, okay, what I mean is this. I mean that um, all creatures that come into this world, and it's worse for the more intelligent ones, all creatures, however, are wounded in their lover in the sense that the oneness with each other and ultimately oceanic oneness is necessarily in a finite world split so that it becomes finite creatures are by definition uh and by the way the universe is structured uh they must um well i mean i'll just say they are separated and 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 competitive and um uh predatory prey and predator it's it's the way this whole thing is built Mm -hmm. so whether you're uh yeah so so the child comes into the world the archetypes are all in there somewhere in potentia but the one that matters the most in the first six months to five years yes, is a lover. For sure. And I don't mean romantic love. And I don't mean, you know, I mean feeling um, welcomed into a nurturing place. Um, so that's, and I'm saying we cannot come into this world without being wounded in, in that in the lover first right um uh all of the the four archetypes inter um intertwine overlap and actually neither the king the magician the warrior or the lover uh in their fullness can exist at all or be actualized without the interpenetration of all the other archetypes that's right so yeah the reason I emphasize the lover, though, is it's our first wound, mm. um, and it's not confined to a gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unavoidable to a large extent. The price we pay for being finite creatures mm-hmm. actualized, um, <clears throat> but that, in fact, I'll say that. Um, I would say that if we had not been wounded to such a degree, whatever that degree is, in the lover, in our first months, years, the other archetypes wouldn't be wounded either. Mm-hmm. Would they even be? In there? other words, yeah, mm-hmm. we get thrown into shadow, into the shadows of the archetypes initially from from. Uh, contact with the world a but b uh less than um adequate or optimal contact with the world mm-hmm. and so i but i i certainly agree the lover is present must be present for wholeness in in the warrior that that has to do with justice and mercy and and compassion and yet you still have to do the job that you have to do mm-hmm. In, in a world that is fragmented and competitive, mm-hmm. um, uh, you still have to hold the boundaries 
which which the warrior does um it's like um yeah without the warrior the lover would just turn around and go back where it came from yes. which is the oceanic you know so in order to survive negotiate and so forth through this world you do have to have the warrior and it's a good thing the magician which I'm sorry to say, and my experience is so overlooked uh, in, for example, men's work. Mm -hmm. uh, the magician is what, in my view, is what the size of it, the complexity of it, is what uh, makes us not simply chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. All of civilization, all that we've done, all that we're doing, if it weren't for this conversation, any kind of, you know, attempt at precise conversation is because of the magician. Mm -hmm. There's no deep self-reflection either without the magician. It is essential to our humanness mm -hmm. um, and can help us in its own by thinking things through clearly and justly and so forth. Can, can help to repair the damage to the lover and the warrior. And then we get to the king, speaking of men. Mm. Um, uh, the reason I put king last is that if a man has not done adequate work in, in shadow work and then integration work with the lover, the warrior, and the magician, uh, then he's in no position whatsoever to to claim kingship mm -hmm. or to pretend kingship or you know so so many people i'm not talking about in men's work per se mm. uh in the world politicians uh i mean i'm not i don't want to point the finger at any particular but uh, all, all of them all of all of them uh rush through, in my view, shadow forms of warrior, shadow shadow forms of lover, shadow forms of warrior, the shadow forms of of the magician, but they go through it like a, a a hot knife through butter. What they want is to be the king. Oh yes, a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the hell with the rest of it. Really, just get me that power, that wealth, that influence, that. And, and we see the result. Yeah. That shows up lots of places too. Yeah. That's why I, I agree with you on, on the king. The king in, in his fullness will inform the male ego of the richness of integration of all of the other three archetypes. Otherwise, resign your office now. <laughs> Please. <laughs> This is great. You're blowing my mind. So, okay. So, so uh, I, I love what you said about um, the magician being this overlooked, enormous archetype because, and, and make that the one that makes us more than chimpanzees, because the divide that I see between the men and the men's movement is between men who are very heavily in their lover energy and men who are very heavily in their warrior energy. And it's just sort of this, this dialectic, right? And so uh, the contention that I make is that these guys have a lot to learn from each other, but they don't actually like each other very much. But the way through that for both of them is the magician energy. 
yep. is the self-transformation energy if they're willing to engage in this process that makes them more than what they are then they can fuse both half of these, themselves together and then they can truly become kings. They can truly step into that, but they have to give up something, which for me manifests primarily, like I look at it, I say it's pride, right? You have to submit yourself to the transformative process that there yeah. is something larger than yourself at work and give over your own lack of knowing to the knowing of the other, of the other man in this case, and go into the magician process and risk something. And then you'll actually get there. Yeah. Part of my language, screw pride. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, just forget about it. Yeah. Uh, get rid of it. Um, uh, become um, the servant of your own wholeness. Preach, brother. Uh, then comes the the uh, the joy of. Um, uh, being an authentic human being, yeah, in the form of a man. And men, men do. Go ahead. I, I, sorry, there is nothing in my life or my experience that is more fulfilling than the realization of fullness. Say that there's mm -hmm. so much more to it, but uh, we, we, none of us get to be whole completely. <laughs> Well, it's just not in the cards. Um, it is, after all, a fragmented, finite world in which oceanic consciousness has been, uh, for whatever good reasons, I think, uh, has been fragmented and made uh, individuals created and made competitive. Um, so, yeah, this isn't the kingdom of heaven. It isn't now. It mm. never was. It never will be. Mm. Maybe it will. <laughs> yeah i don't think so yeah i think that's vertical i think that's vertical history is horizontal uh in my view sure uh but but the more um humane we can become the, the strength of there is such power and strength and humility that it's so much more than pride that yeah. um i mean it, it, it's it's worth a lifetime of work to just get that. Mm -hmm. Well, this this gets into, but what do you what do you humble to? So we're so now we're talking about the vertical. Ah. We're talking about the vertical axis, right? Because there is a way in which humility disconnected from anything higher than just the plain horizontal axis. Like if you're just walking around life just purely humble to everything around you, yeah. that's, that's a position of uh, essentially weakness. But if you're walking around humble to what's truly above you, to what's in the vertical axis, that's a powerful place to truly get to. Right. But then you yeah. serve, right? And so now we're, we're right. kind of talking about some of the divine aspects of, of, of what's going on in King War, King Warrior, Magician Lover that uh, you know that you and I have talked about. So let's go there. Yeah, uh, humility... Uh, in my view, humility, I'm speaking from personal experience, sure, by sure. the way, my inner work and so forth, but also what I think I see in a lot of other people, uh, there's humility that is not true humility. There's a lot of it. It's based on shame or exaggerated introversion or some spiritual ideal uh, that, that uh, or it's, it's fear of conflict or it's yeah it's a whole and it's all false humility yes oh, so because good. the and i'm not picking on anybody but the monk or the the zen 
uh, person, whatever, uh, the Sufi, whatever, whatever, uh, who is just always a gentle, sweet, uh, kind, and um, uh, humble. Uh, Air quotes. It, with quotes. Is it, it more than like, I don't say all everybody like that, but more than likely has not honestly engaged the real nature of the world and themselves. Yes. Um, I do think it's possible maybe to get to, well, it is possible to get to at least moments of authentic and deep humility, which does require uh, bringing all of who I am, the light, the shadow, the goodness, the, the crap I've done, the, the healing I've helped with, the destruction I've caused, bringing that all before, uh, call it anything you want, I would call it super cosmic consciousness, one way to term it. Sure. Um, but you bring it all, and when you submit it all without judging yourself, without shaming yourself, mm-hmm. without pretending to be humble uh, in that you know, kind of conventional way, you bring that all to, to, in my view, that incalculable, incalculably vast someone. Mm-hmm. You bring it all and you lay it before uh, that. Mm-hmm. And that's humility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you, so in, back to men's work, in my view, there is no way to end with the king. Mm-hmm. Because the the human king, uh, thank God, I mean, should never be identified with the archetypal king, and even the archetypal king, because that's possession, um, and not true kingship. But even the archetypal king is only truly that authentically itself if it is laying all of itself before that yes. capital T. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, you climb up the mountains of the archetypes. You, you begin as either a warrior or you begin as a lover, you know, where, wherever the individual man starts right now, transform and fuse these two energies together through the magician, assume kingship, and you arrive at the top of the mountain to become mm-hmm. the archetype of the king, and you realize that there's a king above you that you lay right. all your gifts and all your treasures yeah. and all your and all your mistakes, and all your crap, it, lay it all yeah. at his feet, and yeah. and find find forgiveness and and redemption and wholeness and become a servant. And you, right. you've climbed all the way to the top to the top of the mountain to essentially go all the way back to the mountain again, but in a completely transformed kind of way. Yeah. And then you become a servant for something higher and find true humility and move through the world integrated. And gosh. How do, we, how do we get men there? Uh, first of all, we make we we create environments and processes, and I know there's a lot of that mm-hmm. um, to give men opportunities to begin the work, yeah, uh, and and work it all the way through. Uh, but the other thing, the other thing I'm afraid is is trickier. And that is, it is what, where the, the man is at himself. Um, in other words, there are people 
that the work we're talking about requires a lot of, of intuition. Yes. Yeah, it's an art. Yeah, it requires a lot of intuition, a lot of imagination, not in in a fairy tale sense, but uh, the capacity to envision and to to uh, uh, and there are people that don't have that capacity. Yeah, or it has been so stifled or so interrupted, and of course there are many life situations uh in which there is not just no opportunity but there's there the the darkness is so deep that any glimmer of light is is um is few and far between Mm. and i of course i'm i'm thinking of the international situation right now but it's always been this way it always will be sure uh, I, I'm afraid. Um, I, I maybe not, maybe Hopefully not. But you know, pray to God, maybe not. Pray to God, maybe not. All the way from that level of eight billion people, uh, unprocessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to a very large extent, <laughs> no opportunity for you know who, who are just fighting or and or working or just trying to make it somehow or another from cradle to grave and get get out of here um all the way down to the <coughs> excuse me the, the the individual family mm-hmm. where the little atrocities occur mm-hmm. um not because anybody wants them to but because as as someone was it you or somebody was t- talking to you yesterday about this we just stumble through most people are just stumbling through, eking out as best they can. Yeah. Not only livings, but um, senses of self worth. So, yeah. No, for real. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, the opportunities are enor- to do the work are enormously limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where they do exist, you know, programs, methods, techniques, and the, and then of course there's the individual will. Even if you've entered a process mm-hmm. of initiation into deep and full humanness, humaneness, mm-hmm. um, there there's there's so much that militates against that mm-hmm. within you, within us. Um, and uh, I don't mean to be, hang on, I don't mean to be hopeless about that at all. No, no, no. It's just, again, it pays to face the facts. Mm-hmm. You have to. know to. what we're up against. And it's a lot. Yeah. I, I, uh, I have some experience with plant medicines and ayahuasca, which I've talked about on the, on the podcast and, and before. And, you know, uh, I was uh, during, I was my last ceremony, actually, this would have been in 2018, something like that. Um, you know, I had had a really good ceremony the night before and was feeling, was flying high and, uh, did something really dumb the, the next night. And I, I said, uh, you know, I, I, I'm so grateful for what I found. I'd like to open myself up for it to heal some of the collective. 
completely stupid. <laughs> if you're listening yeah. to this, don't do that. Yeah. Nonetheless, yeah. nonetheless, I spoke that intention <laughs> and in the world and I, and I got it. And that was a, the, what followed was an incredibly difficult night. Um, the most difficult night that I'd ever had. And, mm. but, but I remember distinctly during one of, during one particular moment that I got a glimpse of the amount of suffering that was either in, it was unclear to me, the amount of suffering that was either in the, the the Milky Way galaxy or the cosmos as a whole was kind of unclear, but it was a lot. <laughs> it was it was a lot to just have that vision of just how much pain and suffering there is out there, and it was it was a real. I don't know what the word is. Humbling is not really the word. It was it was, it was like somewhere between humbling and awe inspiring, but not necessarily yeah. in a great way. Yeah. And to really yeah. glimpse that is to is to recognize the scale of the work that needs to be done within our own hearts and our own minds and our own families and our own and in our own world. Um, but I find myself wondering if it's, if, if, if it begins not with trying to bring the work to everyone, but just finding the right men who are like, okay, this is, we've had enough of this. And now we within ourselves feel that we're willing to commit to the work all the way through, all the way through becoming a servant to the Lord, let's say, and going all the way up to that point. Because, yeah. because, you know, one man can lead a community of, of hundreds to peace, if not more. And maybe it's not, maybe it's not bringing the work to everyone. Maybe that happens over time, but we just find the right number of men willing to do that work to lead others down the path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I, I agree with that. And I, I think that, um, uh, my encounter, um, encounters with the universe or reality uh, as, as it's given to us, including my own reality, mm -hmm. my own nature, um, uh, is that, um, um, that in itself is that, that in itself, that, that dark realization is, uh, a door opening to authentic humility too. That's an opportunity. For authentic humility yeah to know, know what we're up against yeah I, I got a bit of that you know yeah uh and the um and i i again i don't want to be negative uh so okay. i'm gonna say for myself i used to have what was a heroic consciousness of uh a grandiose i suppose uh, I really thought I had a mission to make the world a significantly better place. And I mean, significantly. I, I think you have. So, uh, no, but I mean, so that uh, uh, Russia, for example, would not be murdering people in Ukraine okay, uh, by the Bushel. With that level. Uh, and, and the cruelty. I, yeah, I mean, I, I thought. When I was young, hey, you know, we're we're so much alike in so many ways, uh, you know. Yeah. It's so obvious we should just, you know, kind of get together and hang out and enjoy each other and help each other up. And um, uh, coming down from that uh, has led me to, um, and you're perhaps more hopeful than I am about humankind on Mars. But I, I'm going to, um, uh, um, I'm going to quote, paraphrase, Jesus, when he said, the kingdom of heaven is entered through the narrow gate 
one by one. The masses take the broad road to lostness. Yeah, basically. And so the responsibility I think I have, and I think every man, every woman, is to themselves. Not not in a selfish way. Mm-hmm. I understand what you mean. But the responsibility is here. Um, and that's what Jung said, too. I mean, he said, uh, if you don't get yourself integrated, you've got no business trying to integrate others. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. It is a, it, I think that that's job one. I think mm-hmm. a, a man who is not properly integrated, probably true for women too, but since we're talking about men, a man who has not properly integrated these different aspects of himself, not worked with, not work with the mother wound, not work with the father wound, not done the work all the way through, again, through the warrior, through the lover, through the magician and into the king, a man who hasn't fully done that can only manifest, uh, uh, let's say, a purpose to to some limited degree within himself yeah. like it's it's not necessarily as neat as i finish job one and then i do job two because <laughs> there are shades of job two that come in as you're doing job one sort of like a you know the day begins to dawn kind of thing as you're working your way through the shadow of night the, the, write that down so yeah. so you so it's it's not necessarily like this over it, there's an overlap but the first thing is to, is to is to heal the divides within yourself as a man, and only then can you begin to be of of true service to the world, right? And right. And, and so and so yes, because for myself, I've been very blessed to do a lot of the work. It was like my sole focus for a long period of time, and when I got far enough into it, you know, I was able to I was able to realize, oh, okay, I do have this larger purpose to contribute. Now my job is just to do the work. Like I'm not mm-hmm. entitled. That's I'm not entitled to the outcome of the work. I'm entitled to the labor, yeah. right? And I'm not entitled to the outcome. And so I have to yep. detach from that. But I think in that there's the real possibility if men approach things in a similar way. I won't say that my way is what's right for every man, but mm-hmm. I think it. I think there might be something good for every man in that. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't mean we do well. Initially, we we do the work. Because we recognize in some major way or ways our lives are not what we want them to be. Uh, They're misfiring. They're going awry. And that's that's the initial call to initiation is the realization Mm. that um, this is not working. Uh, So so then there's the focus on, on the individual life, which is essential. Um, not in a narcissistic way, mm-hmm. but, but it's just the facts of life. Um, the first focus has to be on me and then the recognition that the fullness and wholeness that I'm working toward is never going to be. That's right. Complete. That's right. Uh, but there, there, there's a point or points at which, as you, as you said, it's, it's all kind of mixed together. There are points at which as the soul is growing and filling out and balancing and integrating uh, others, not all others, some others, those that are queued up for it, um, Mm. uh, uh, are queued into it, notice. And and that's when we can share. Mm -hmm. When they're ready. Mm -hmm. and, And that's how it happens. Uh, you know, it doesn't happen uh, by 
conquering the the Americas in the in the name of Ferdinand and Isabella at the end of the sword. It doesn't happen by you know what I mean. It, Maybe it, not now. It, well, right. Maybe yeah. It, it it's oh people start noticing and they would like that too. Oh, I see. Somehow. Yes, embodiment. Right. Yeah. You you you're not necessarily going out literally to conquer. Right. Right. You're 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 conquering yourself this un- mm-hmm. this own in- uncharted territory and through the conquest of self you provide a model for self conquest for others. Yeah, they get excited about it. They yeah. want to know, wow, what is that? Mm-hmm. I would like to have that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's and it's not I I was thinking when you were saying that that it's not about um it's not about fulfill uh, appetites. Right. I think that there's a lot of this where it's like being, being selfish, right? Like there's a, the conquest of self. We're used to thinking of self in terms of these are my appetites. I want food, security, status, wealth, whatever it is, right? All these things. Those are our appetites versus fulfillment, which is true embodiment into the nature of self, which may come with some of those other appetite satisfying things, but it may not. But the process of embodiment and fulfillment is so much deeper and more satisfying than any of those could ever be. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not either or yes. exactly, um, because what's out there, quote unquote, um, that pertains to me uh, and will aid me in becoming fuller. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want that, uh, but ultimately, it is about my becoming fuller and more whole, mm-hmm. and and. If various things out there have helped to serve the purpose, we can begin to shed them. You know, they they may be catalysts or they may be whatever. But um, I mean, the old I'm seventy three and a half, and I have come to feel that. Um, <laughs> my daughter asked me sometimes. Why aren't you, why, how come you're so calm now most of the time? And I say, well, honey, um, I don't have any more worlds to conquer. Mm-hmm. And you're not my responsibility to raise mm-hmm. anymore. So it's like, um, and what I mean by that is um, uh, separating or detaching. And, I, and I, again, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not. Advocating a schizoid detachment, but I'm just yeah. saying, or or a false monk detachment. Sure. But I'm saying there comes a time, at least for me, there has come a time, and it keeps dawning to detach more and more from any notions of uh, changing the world, um, conquering anything, mm-hmm. and um, and my focus turns more more vertical than horizontal uh, uh, and not for me but for everybody I, I come in contact with that's the point not about me mm-hmm. um, so I've come to understand um, uh, WH Auden's uh, last uh, couple sentences in in his poem archaeology. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't mean this literally, but there's some truth here hmm. for me. Uh, he says, 
History is made by the criminal in us. Goodness lasts forever. Mm. I think and I'm that. thinking, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that goes for our personal histories too, not just history history. Um, and I, I am saying it's an exaggeration, okay, because there are good things that come out of, and, and I'm not for, I mean, I think we're in the world for good reason, mm-hmm. not just to get out. But there's a truth here that our acquisitive stuff that you were talking about uh, is very often criminal acts in in a in a, um, a more gentle sense than full criminality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. It, uh, and and it is bounded by history, our personal histories, our lives from you know from inception to to biological death uh and that's that's history and but the goodness the moments of goodness mm. for me that is everything by now at 73 and a half mm-hmm. that's beautiful and i think you know who i think um you know who I think would actually agree with W.H. Oden might surprise you? It's uh, J.R.R. T- uh, Tolkien. Because Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Oh, oh okay. So you get to go first then. Okay, so why, why do you think Tolkien would agree? Um, this, this, this would be great. Because Tolkien was, uh, while he's writing history, mm-hmm. you know, fantasy history, he's writing the history of the soul. and particularly uh bilbo's soul mm. and uh and sam <laughs> and frodo you know all this grand historical drama takes place out you know in the big world but but it's really finally about uh um the soul of the individual um it's not bilbo it's frodo frodo, frodo. yeah uh well bilbo too yeah. but frodo uh and in the end, Frodo, like Bilbo, leaves the world. Mm-hmm. It, it was always about verti- going vertical, but somehow it, it, it was, uh, there had to be the horizontal for the vertical to become manifest. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that the horizontal exists only for the sake of going individuals going vertical um it has its own worth it's like mm. for me my students have asked me sometimes um they 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 ask me well um if god is good why is nature and human nature the way it is and i said i don't know <laughs> I, I i think uh god has many purposes Yes. And I have no idea what they are, and it's not my business. Where it is my business is where I reach out in love to that, and that reaches out to me Mm -hmm. with love. Yeah. I don't know what the other purposes are. Um, And I'm, I'm certainly, as a puny, finite creature, not qualified to really speculate much. Mm. Uh, I just know 
what the moment of love is. I know that that's important for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the rest of creation, but um, one of my, uh, and we're going to have to stop pretty soon, right? Oh, wow. Have we blown through our time already? Oh, big time. Amazing. Uh, uh, but um, uh, one of my lyrical illuminations is um, um, why instead of nothing has a universe been unfurled? Because mm-hmm. there is no where to meet except within a world. Yes, that's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So, so maybe for a future conversation, because we've touched on a lot of different things that, um, that my faith can speak to. So one of the things that we, that we spoke about earlier is, um, the separation from the divine. Like, why do we all have this sense of being isolated, fragmented creatures? Where does that, where does that come from that we all, that we all share this notion that we were once part of something much larger and now we're separate in, in, individual selves and we feel some pain around that. So different faith traditions of the world that I've explored have different ways of explaining that. So the way that Buddhism explains that is that your individual separate self is an illusion and that through meditation you transcend the illusion of separate self and realize the unity that you always you always have behind you. So in that world, free will is an illusion. It doesn't really exist. And you, your whole existence doesn't really exist. You're not real. That's, that's, the, that's the Buddhist sort of Hindu explanation. The Christian explanation is, and just to, to speak into this, the sort of what, where my faith speaks is to say that humanity are, we, we were separate from God. We were made creatures and we made a bad choice. We made a bad choice to eat from the, uh, the apple of, of um, knowledge of good and evil and we fell from the state of, of un, unity with God in, into creation. And the whole story of creation is to move forward back into to bring God's kingdom down onto earth that we that we have since fallen from. We fell from God's kingdom to into material reality, which is a different world, and God's kingdom will will come down and we we manifest God God's kingdom through our life and through embodying it and bring it forward. And so that's that. That's that. So there are lots right. of different, and so that's the Christian story. And so, you know, where does all that we we're, and we also talk about the notion of being a servant of of achieving kingship and who and what are you serving? You're laying all all the all your treasures and all your faults at the feet of whom and what. That's that you're laying it all, and so it speaks into all this. But that's a much larger conversation for us to get into. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, and here's where I I agree with Irenaeus, mm-hmm. uh, who said. Um, Yes, the fall was a great tragedy. On the other hand, it was a great blessing. That's right. Because there wouldn't be any unfolding of soul, yes. any any richness of experience. He said it was intended uh, to. So there's there are other dimensions here. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to offend any Buddhists, but uh, <laughs> don't. Uh, but I don't think our reason for being here is an illusion i don't think our being here is an illusion i don't think the reason for being here is illusory i don't think we made a mistake and anyway who made the mistake there was no individual to make the mistake of illusion right it's all yeah it's a big game yeah i i i i find um that there is no hard to say in words there is no greater meaning there is no meaning in nothing. Mm-hmm. 
it is without value, without meaning. It's purposeless, pointless. And, you know, if you need to go there to become self-extinguished, okay, uh, <laughs> that's not where I want to go. I want to be in love. And, and I don't just mean romantic. Of course. I mean, in, in love with life, in love with my wife, in love with my daughter, our soon-to-be grandchild, mm. uh, in love with creation even though it has its very, very, very dark side, uh, how else besides creation could such goodness and joy be manifested? Mm-hmm. How other, there wouldn't, there's no way to meet in nothingness. Mm-hmm. And, and meet, you have to, we have to meet in somethingness. We have to meet in a world. And what is more wonderful than meeting mm-hmm. in, in a good way? Nothing. Nothing, nothing. That's and, and and I agree with you. And that's the that's the beauty and, and tragedy of some of the Western stories of creation around Christianity. That this this world has fallen and it's broken and it's sinful. And yet, out of, out of this great act of love, you know, of suffering, Jesus Christ died and suffered for on behalf of this broken world. And that is the most profound act of love. This this real contradiction, this real paradox that this, yeah, this world that seems so broken that we're willing to die and suffer for it. Just to speaking, you know, to speaking about that, that there's so much there's so much beauty in that in that message. Yeah. Well, I do in that and I, I really do have to stop. For sure, for sure. <laughs> but what greater affirmation of the world could there be than that? Yes. You know, anyway, now I've got to, you're going to. For sure. Well, um, I would like to have another conversation with you at some point, continuing on these themes. I think, uh, I think a lot of my listeners would be very excited to hear where this would go. But in the Uh, meantime, where can men go to find out more about you and what you do? uh, Me? Find out more about me? Yeah. Where would you like to send Uh, them to? Oh, well, I mean, an obvious place would be Amazon mm-hmm. uh, to read my books. If, if they, well, my classes, uh, they're virtual. So people can join uh, as long as the time zones work out, sure. uh, you know, um, uh, and that would be contacting, going online uh, and contacting Oakton Community College. Uh, what is it called? Department of, of Continuing Education, uh, and under that, the Emeritus Program mm-hmm. courses. And there I am. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Doug. This has been fan- this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed this, and I look forward yeah, to further, too, well. further conversations. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's have them. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com 
or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.